Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58. Hear now the word of the Lord. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. As we begin today's message, let's start with a prayer. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So what are you storing up for? What puts a twinkle in your eye? Where is your treasure? Because where your treasure is, your heart is also. Skeptics throughout the ages, from the ancient world to the current, have scoffed at, argued against, dismissed the truth of the resurrection. There was this idea that the physical is bad, weak, and evil, while the spirit is good, noble, and true. So to be free of the body has been this idea that many philosophers and religious gurus over time have tried to perpetuate and teach over Christian teaching. Again, this kind of thinking has led to a variety of hedonistic practices over the ages. If filling your belly is all there is, then yes, we should eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so this kind of mentality dominates our culture today. It's quite literally anything anyone posts on their social media. I had mentioned this uh, in the members meeting, but the Wall Street Journal did some investigative journalism into one specific social media platform. It's called TikTok. And they created, so, so the Wall Street Journal team, they created 31 bot accounts. And they registered these 31 accounts as 13 to 15 year olds. And so what you would see is TikTok monitors your views and also not just the views, but as you scroll, what types of videos you linger on. And they found out that even these 31, 13 to 15-year-old accounts, they were quickly dominated by adult-oriented content, including accounts clearly labeled adults only. There was one account registered to a 13-year-old boy, and by the time they were done, that account had 569 videos on drug use appear, including cocaine and methamphetamine. 
as well as promotional videos for online purchase of these products. These, these accounts were being shown how to buy illegal drugs online. So now 13 to 15 year olds, their dealers are not people that you would meet in a shady street corner, but it would be on the dark web. Other accounts were shown hundreds of videos that encouraged eating disorders and the like. And so the Wall Street Journal, what they did was they reported to TikTok about a thousand videos that featured drugs, pornography, and other adult content that had been displayed specifically to these 13 to 15 year olds in this platform, TikTok. And they are reported then, after receiving that, TikTok has been reported to remove out of the thousand, 255 of those videos but we all know that they were probably immediately replaced with others. If you are a parent or guardian, you must monitor the social media activity of your children. If you are married, show your search page to your spouse. See, this idea of eat and drink, by the way, I do show it to Esther from time to time and she finds it very boring but I guess that's better than the other things, but it's, it's all, yeah, uh, like Bible verses and golf. But anyway, um, eat and drink, though, eat and drink is tearing our families and our communities apart. This idea of eat and drink is ripping into our social structures in society. Not to mention this particular social media platform is still, it's still giving our personal info. That means our likes, our desires, our purchasing habits, they're giving them to the enemy, still to this moment. Bottom line is if there is no resurrection, then eating and drinking, if there is no resurrection, then eating and drinking would be the only thing you would be left with. And then indeed that black hole will only grow over time. Soon you, your friends, you're living the life, all of you together, putting it up on your social media, living that high life, but you will start to face the inevitable. Liver cancer, heart disease, old age, separation. Even if you chose not to listen to me, like, look at this guy. What a prude, right? Look at this guy. Why don't you just live in a crack in a rock somewhere? But even if you chose not to listen to me, there is a preacher that the world listens to. He speaks in every tongue and visits every nation and goes to every tribe across the world. And wherever he goes, he speaks the same message. There is no one that could refute him. No one that can upstage him. No one that could remove him from his pulpit. People hate him, but they also fear him. And his name is Death. One preacher said of Death that every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text, and one day every one of us will be his message. 
philosophers of the time would write about how death and the journey to Hades would be inevitable, but while it's inevitable, you know what? Maybe it's a better place. And the way they could make sense of that was to reason that the body is evil and the spirit inside is good, minus the ascetics who are completely disconnected from reality. But that kind of reasoning led people back to then the hedonistic principles. If you're thinking that, yeah, the body's evil, the spirit is really good, you know, my intent is good, I really want to do good things, it's just that this body won't let me do it. But that kind of reasoning would continually lead people back in this cycle to the hedonistic principles. It's led so many of our modern day to depression, anxiety, because if pleasure is all we have left in this body, if pleasure is all we have left in this body, then cue every social and sexual movement of today. If the highest good that we can attain is simply pleasure, then anyone denying me this pleasure surely must be evil. If I want to marry a woman or a man, if I want to have multiple partners, which is polyamory, also it's making a massive, polyamory is making a massive push through TikTok right now and other social media accounts. If I want to have multiple partners, if I want to identify as such and such, why in the world would you stop me? Why would you deny me the only one good thing in life? But there is and will be a resurrection. This has been shown to us in the scriptures. In Daniel, we see that some will be raised to everlasting life and others will be raised to everlasting shame. That means everyone will be raised again, and some will be raised to live eternally with God, and others will be raised to die eternally away from God. And to this, the skeptics, both ancient and modern, would mock and say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? What about if you are cremated, torn apart by wild animals, drowned and eaten by the fishes, and your bones scattered across the ocean floor? Hmm? And so last week, we went over how Paul addressed the skeptics with the four A's, the analogy about how the seed grows into a plant, the arrangement, how God has designed and arranged for us a body for the resurrection, the associations or contrasts between the current body and the resurrection body, the perishable and imperishable, and finally the archetype, Jesus, the first fruits and archetype of the resurrection. Today, we finally finish chapter 15. This is the pinnacle of the great mountain on the resurrection. Mozart would write a requiem where he would write about how all flesh would become, would go to God, either in rest or in wrath, which is exactly what Daniel talks about. The introitus is what I wake up to every day. So I listen to that every, every morning. And yes, I wake up to a choir singing about death and eternal rest every single morning. My wife thinks it's a little weird, but I don't think so. I think it's awesome. But Brahm would also compose a requiem using the words of Paul in this chapter. And Handel, 
Handel was someone so great that even Beethoven would pay tribute to him and his work. Handel, in his most famous work, The Messiah, after the great hallelujah chorus that everybody knows, if I go hallelujah, everybody knows this chorus, the four songs right after the hallelujah chorus, all four songs are from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 until the finale. So this is the great finale of this letter. This is the great pinnacle of the mountain on the resurrection. And so this morning, we'll look at four T's in this section, the tell, the twinkle, the triumph, and the therefore. The tell, twinkle, triumph, and therefore. In verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul is going to lay down some wonderful truths here, and he starts off by saying that he is telling us this. Truth must be told. It must be proclaimed. It must be communicated. Why? Because you can't please God without faith. By faith, Abel gave a better offering than Cain, and faith comes then from hearing. Paul asks then in Romans, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And in verse 17 of chapter 10 in Romans, Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Truth must be told, and it is told through the word of God. Why is it that we hold the Bible in such great esteem? It's not because we're conservatives, and it's not because we're liberals. Both conservative and liberal will say that they hold on to the Bible perhaps, but it's because of a particular agenda. This is not a biblical agenda. This is what G.K. Chesterton writes about conservatives and liberals or progressives. As a matter of fact, the conservative has exactly the same error as the progressive. It consists in the fact that each of them allows truth to be determined by time. That is, he judges a thing by whether it is of yesterday or today or tomorrow, but not what it is in eternity. Truth isn't yesterday. Truth isn't tomorrow. There is no such thing as what many politicians will try to argue and try to convince you to say you need to be on the, quote, right side of history, unquote. There is no such thing because there is only truth and truth is eternal. This is why the Holy Writ is held in such high esteem. It's eternal. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And Peter continues on after saying this, and he says, The word is the good news that was preached to you. You see, the Bible isn't just advice. It's not just a storybook. It's not something that we can manipulate so that we can use it however we please. It is the Word of God, and it is what transforms us and changes us. Not we, it. It, us. And Jesus would say of the Scriptures, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So why do we hold on to the primary doctrines, but also the secondary and the tertiary and so on? It's because Jesus continued with a warning. After he said this, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter if it's a quote-unquote low commandment. People might say, oh, I believe in Christ, but everything else like gender roles or church polity or when you were talking about the charismatic movement, I believe we should be tolerant or charitable. To my response was, who told you that it was low? Who told you to call it a low commandment? Jesus warns against relaxing any commandment that God gives whether it's in the name of charity or tolerance, we have done is we have gobbled up and invited the secular ideologies of the day and brought them into the church just like the Corinthians. I pray that this church never do that. When God commands, then may our wills bend toward him. And so what is this great truth that he is telling us? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood refers to our current physical state. This is clear from Scripture's use of the term, like in Hebrews 2.14 or in Galatians 1.16, for Paul did not consult with anyone that is flesh and blood. This is then a blunt statement that flesh and blood, our current physical state, the current physical state that you are in right now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This should eliminate all crude ideas of the resurrection. There aren't any zombies. Jesus was not a zombie. That kind of uninformed thinking are from people who do not know the Bible and or, according to Paul, are just fools, deficient in reason. The body is in this current body in this current state will not and cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Believers who are lifted up into heaven will not be lifted up in this crude form. Why? Because the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. The inference here is that the current flesh and blood state, the current physical state which is perishable then must be changed because the kingdom of God is imperishable. The kingdom of God is of the imperishable kind, so the body must be changed to the imperishable kind. In verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Behold, now I want you to listen to this. Behold, that's what he's saying. I want you to listen. Paul is going to tell us a mystery. The word mysterion means something that is unknown, means something that is hidden. By saying that he's telling us a mystery doesn't mean he's going to give us a Sherlock Holmes novel. He is saying that he is going to reveal something that was once hidden. That's pretty exciting. And Jesus says this in Matthew as well of the mysterion, 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Mysterion isn't revealed through brute strength or superior intellect. You can't figure it out just because you can rip through it and you can't figure it out because you have an IQ of 200. Mysterion is something that can only be revealed by God. Unless God reveals it, that means it would have never been known. So this is a big deal. Everyone is curious about the resurrection. What about the second coming? When people don't die, how can they be raised again if they don't actually die? And Paul says here that we won't all die. And sleep is a euphemism for believers that have died. But we won't all die, but we will all be changed. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And the change will not be some long, drawn-out affair. It will happen in a moment. A moment is from the word Adamas. It's where we get the word Adam. We named the Adam the Adam because Adamas means something that cannot be divided. You cannot make something smaller out of it. That's what Adamas is. It's literally the smallest unit. Obviously, we know now that there are particles that make up the atom, so it was a misnomer. But moment is from the word Adamas, which means the quickest time unit there is. In the twinkling of an eye. Maybe you can get the idea that the resurrection of the dead is likened to like a slow growth of a seed. But the change in the living will take place with a quickness. The twinkling is translated from repay. Repay is where we get the notion of throwing. It's the quickness of throwing a glance or the flutter of an eyelid. Naturally, after reading the previous verses, you would think that the resurrection may be just a process, but this is not a process. It's a flash. One interesting thing to note about the twinkle. An eye blink is fast, but the twinkle is not an eye blink. It's a twinkle. Saccadic eye movements, that means rapid changes in fixation of your eye can reach up to, in the human eye, can reach up to 700 degrees per second. And so per second, your eye can move 700 degrees. I've read that your eye can even pinpoint up to three different locations in one second. Needless to say, the twinkle is quite fast. Even when we call someone light or quick on their feet, we call them twinkle toes, right? And so when will the twinkle happen? It will happen at the last trumpet. The trumpet is linked with the Old Testament. They were used in times of festivity and triumph, and both are in place in this section. There's both festivity and triumph in this section. So here's what has been revealed. In the last trumpet call, we will be called to God. The dead will be changed in a twinkle from perishable to imperishable, from mortal to immortal. 
See, the Israelites were summoned with much fear and trembling in Exodus 19 with a trumpet call. In Isaiah 27, it says that in that day a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. God will gather his people to himself at the last trumpet call and we will be changed. Mozart understood that, so that's why in the introitus he talks about being called up into Jerusalem as well. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When the twinkle happens, the perishable puts on the imperishable. The mortal puts on the immortality. He repeats it again for emphasis. Then comes the great triumph. Right now, right now, we are currently in a state of simul justus et peccator. That means we are simultaneously justified and a sinner. But when the twinkle happens, that will be changed. For the justified, for anyone and everyone for that matter. What is your biggest problem? What is your biggest problem right now? And that's an easy answer. It's an easy answer. Your biggest problem is you. You are your biggest problem. You want to do all these things, but you can't. So you blame others. You become bitter. You become depressed. Because it's you, you, you. Rousseau was out of his gourd when he said that your problems are actually society's fault. And people just wanted to pick it up because they couldn't take even the notion of blaming yourself. So you just blame others. And so people living out this philosophy today only want to vandalize, tear down, and destroy. In their delusion, they honestly believe that the only way to build is to completely and absolutely tear down society as we know it. It's the most simplistic, deluded way. And mind you, people have tried it over and over and over in the past century, but only in our willful self-deception. So we convince ourselves we're better than those fools in the past. You want to know why we can't ever build a utopia here on earth? It's because of you. You want to know why you can't find the perfect church? Because even if you did, once you join it, it would become imperfect. Your biggest problem is you. The enemy is within. And so in repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit, we no longer gratify our fleshly desires, but live for the newborn spirit given to us. John Owen said so famously, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But even so, you will not be able to fix it completely. But the promise is, one day the Lord will and it will be triumphant there is a reason why we hate and fight against sin it's because it brings death we understand that it first came from adam but we as believers should no longer perpetuate its deadly cycle 
Because if it weren't for sin, there would be no death. But because we continue to sin, death as an enemy ever grows. Life becomes more miserable through sin. And so we have a reason to fear death. We have a reason to hate death. Death separates us from those we love most dearly. It does not discriminate. It does not show favoritism. It has snatched from us the young as well as the old, our friends, and even our family members. There is no doubt that it is an enemy. But the promise of the scripture is that one day the perishable will become and be made imperishable. The mortal made immortal at the resurrection. And it is at the resurrection that death will be swallowed up. It's from Isaiah 25, 8. And it means to be engulfed. It means to be no more, not weakened. Death isn't going to be weakened, not handicapped. It's going to be gone. When you see how much damage the enemy has done, and when you finally realize it is no more, is it any wonder why Paul then would sing, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? A sting is something that hurts us, but if the sting is gone, how can it hurt us any longer? All that pain death caused, all that pain death can cause, gone. What is that sting? The sting of death is sin. You know why there's all this tribulation, suffering in the world? It's because of sin. And the power of sin is the law. If you are a lawbreaker, you are under a curse. This is clear. This is absolutely true for any civil society. But God has made the law for all humankind to follow. And if you have broken any law from the greatest to the smallest, whatever it is, you are a lawbreaker and now you're under a curse. And then death has terminal power over you. But if your sins are forgiven in Christ, death no longer has power. And you can even do what Paul is doing here. He's almost taunting death. Death, where is your sting? And that leads to my secret point. I said there were four, but this is point number 3.5. And it's thanksgiving. But thanks be to God. All of God's people who recognize their inevitable triumph in Christ over death would lead them into thanksgiving. Who do we get to thank for this great triumph? It's God and the work of his son that our price for sin has been atoned for. Christ became a curse for us. He bore the sting that we should have gotten. And now for those in Christ, death is disarmed. Death is defeated. Thanks be to God. And here is the final point, the therefore. It's Paul's vital concluding point. And what is truly fascinating about this is that in regard to the resurrection, he gives eight, uh, 57 verses on doctrine. From verses 1 to 57, it's doctrine after doctrine. And on this one final verse in the therefore, he gives 
application. So when someone asks you, is doctrine that important? I would think so, very much so. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Number one, be steadfast. This has to do with conviction. Don't be moved by your emotions. You are going to rise from the dead. Don't worry. Move then with your convictions. Have a stable purpose. That means stand for truth. Number two, immovable. Stop wavering. The Corinthians had a habit of following the latest philosophical trend. It was appealing. They wanted to bring pleasure to their lives. They're like, this feels good. I just want to do it. Hebrews 13.9 reminds us, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. It brings us back to the beginning of the letter, to be of one mind. Don't be like children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes in Ephesians 4. That means what we say is, if the scriptures say this, this is where we stand. Number three, always abounding in the work, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Get to work. Don't just dip your feet. Don't just dabble at service or ministry. Don't just give pocket change. Get to work. There is work to be done. Abound in the work. That means to be excessive in your work. To be excessive to overflow. That's what abound is. Knowing what you know now, why in the world would you hold back? Why in the world would anybody hold back? Knowing what you have been taught in the word now, knowing that it has been assured to us in Christ why would you hold back? And know that the work you put in is not for naught. There is a sure reward for your toil, and that reward is eternal. We work so hard for perishable things, don't we? But God has given his church assignments now to work for the eternal. What are you doing? Do you really think that you can say to God, I was just taking a break and wouldn't you know it, 20 to 30 years just passed by. What are you storing up for? What can we now store up for now we have been given the assurance of resurrection? You know, there, I'm going to end with this brief, brief story about Benjamin Franklin. Uh, many may know him as a deist. A deist is someone that believes God is just this big clockmaker. And so he just made this clock and then he leaves everybody to do their own thing, right? So God exists. So a lot of people, in, even in the States, believe this idea of deism where God is just this grand clockmaker. He may have created everything, but he's kind of hands off. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was known as a deist. But what he did, what many people don't know, is he grew up as a Puritan. He grew up in a Puritan household. And so as he aged, though, he, tended, he trended back toward his traditional faith. And biographers have acknowledged this. 
He even, toward the end of his life, proposed that the Constitutional Convention of 1870-something, uh, that they open their sessions with prayer. He said, we should open our constitutional sessions with prayer. Only a smattering few people uh, like supported this, and that proposal was tabled. So there is no more prayer before the sessions. This is what Benjamin Franklin proposed. If you go to Philadelphia and you go to Benjamin Franklin's grave, there is an epitaph that he wrote when he was younger, but it has been etched on his tombstone. And I want to read this for you. And this is what's written in Benjamin Franklin's tombstone. The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms, but the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition corrected and improved by the author. Well, that's amazing. And that's what Christians believe. We will be raised up in a new and more elegant edition. We will be given a resurrection body. So church, it's time then to get to work as he commands us. Let's pray.